Hello, it's Matt and Becky here from Local Zero. Just a quick note to say before the episode starts that from April 2024, Local Zero will be looking for some new funding to keep it going. We never imagined when we started three years ago that we'd rack up tens of thousands of listens across 130 countries and with a website hosting over 80 episodes. We've also met and worked with some incredible people, including Chris Stark, Hannah Ritchie, Jim Ski, Hugo Tacom, and so many more. And we've been able to showcase so many amazing local climate initiatives from all over the UK and far beyond. But sadly, keeping the pod going costs money. If you or your organisation would like to partner up with the pod as we move into an exciting new chapter, then do reach out to us. You can contact us via our email, localzeropod at gmail.com. That's localzeropod at gmail.com. Alternatively, you can contact us on X, formerly Twitter, at localzeropod, or on LinkedIn, direct to Matt Hannon or Rebecca Ford. Finally, to help us in our quest to secure funding, we want to hear positive stories from listeners about how the pod has influenced your life and your work. We hope to do a very special episode on this too. So please help us continue the fight against climate change and bring local climate action to doorsteps across the world. Thanks for listening. Now back to the pod. So in this episode, we're going to be covering uh, quite a lot of technical jargon. I think there's three key terms that we're going to use quite a lot. Heat pump, district heating, and EPC, or Energy Performance Certificate. So our guests, who we'll introduce later, Rich and Jen, have kindly uh, offered to explain some of these terms in a few key words. So Rich, what is a heat pump, please? Thanks, Matt. So a heat pump is a device which uses electricity to extract heat from the environment. It works with similar components to a fridge, so it's got a compressor and a pump, and basically it takes heat that's at a lower temperature in the environment and squeezes it to give you a higher um, temperature, and that heat is then basically put into your house to do your hot water or to heat up your radiators. Brilliant. And energy performance certificate, please. So an energy performance certificate is a certificate which is supposed to measure the energy efficiency um, of your house and give you some idea over the running costs. Um, And most people will see them um, when either you buy a house or you rent a new house. They are notoriously um, unreliable. Excellent. And Jen, district heating, please. District heating is a a form of heating or distributed heat where you have a central um, source, a boiler or a source of heat. Uh, It could be a heat pump even. Then that heat is then distributed through pipes to a number of different homes or buildings. So I suppose at the moment I I might have a single boiler in my flat that services me and that's it. But in a district heat system, you'd be taking that central source of heat and distributing it to a number of different heat users. District heating doesn't necessarily mean net zero compatible heating. It depends very much on the source of that heat. Okay, thank you very much. Hello, I'm Dr. Rebecca Ford. Hi, and I'm Dr. Matt Hannan. We're recording this episode as we come out of the coldest spell in years, minus 23 degrees in parts of Scotland. And we've all been cranking up that thermostat, and it's starting to really focus the mind on how we can keep ourselves warm. And Chris Stark, Chief Executive of the Climate Change Committee, told us on Local Zero a few weeks ago, heat is something we really need to move radically on. You've got to have a strategy in place over the next decade. That's two parliaments to get to the point when you're ready for people to start en masse replacing high carbon boilers with something low carbon. We look at that heat question. We've always known about the technologies that would decarbonise heat. We've always known about the things that could be done. We just haven't been doing them. Today, we'll be talking to two experts on how the UK can deliver on its ambition to decarbonise heating, Dr. Richard Lowe's and Dr. Jennifer Roberts. The challenge is huge. I mean, we've got the challenge of decarbonising heating across the board in the UK, whether that's from commercial buildings through to the houses that we live in. Currently, we are massively behind on all of our targets, whether that's for renewable heat or um, other forms of low carbon heat. It requires you know, nothing short of a total transformation. I think, yeah, we should have a ban on gas boilers. <laughs> because you know you can't have gas boilers in the net zero energy system. We'll also hear from people who've installed their own heat pumps about what prompted them to make the switch to clean heating, how they went about this and what it's like to live with it. After we did the installation, 
the firm said, would you mind perhaps showing some prospective customers what we've done? And so we had several people come around and we could say that this is what it's like, this is what it sounds like, this is what it looks like. And this is how warm it is in our house. Yeah, quite. <laughs> And as always, remember to follow us on social media. Use our handle at energyrev underscore UK and the hashtag local zero. Reach out to us with any questions or comments you'd like us to address in future episodes and we'll make sure to get back to you. As always, we're joined by Fraser Stewart. Welcome, Fraser. Hello. How is everybody doing? All right. We're all right. We've, we've survived the big freeze. How about you? Yeah, much the same. I was very, very glad to see that quick thaw the other night. Yeah, it was, and wasn't it? Wasn't it quick? It's nice. It's tropical now. From three, four inches of snow, about twenty-four hours, we were back to wet, drab, and windy. <laughs> I don't know about you guys. We live in a, a drafty, cold, single-glazed, uh, semi-detached house. We woke up to ice on the inside of the windows about three or four nights on the bounce. I, I feel particularly bad because I actually went into the kids' room and uh, there was ice there as well. So double glazing is on, on the hit list for this year, I think. Yeah, we're very lucky. Our, our home does have double glazed windows, but still those really high ceilings, it's uh, out of, you know, poor insulation. We've definitely been relying on our wood burning stove during this cold snap. So very, very pleased to get out of it. And of course, absolute critical focus for today's show and I know Matt you've been studying up hard and bringing in all the facts and figures to wow us with today. Swatting's the technical term (laughs) yeah there's been been a bit of background and you know why it's because there's just been so much a bit of background a bit of background yes a little bit of light reading um (laughs) for the for the benefit of the of the listeners who can't see our preparation documents ahead of every episode Matt his note-taking is Becky I don't know how you would describe it but I think Matt takes more notes than either of us might write in a standard in a standard uh, journal article. It's the basis of a PhD thesis we've got going here. <laughs> figures, figures galore as well. I like that there's a figures in a podcast where you can't actually see anything. That's my, <laughs> so we know that it's yeah. just for Matt's benefit. There's just been so much happening in this space of late. So you know we've had big uh, announcements um, from the ten point plan, uh, which sort of followed into the, the government's you know uh, white paper. We're expecting a big kind of heating and buildings report, uh, what, another well uh, policy statement coming out in the next few weeks. Scottish government have got their own one out. So there's so much happening in this space, all in the name of net zero. You know, I'm going to ask you both, here we go, a bit of a quiz. So heating accounts for about 84% of the energy consumption in the home. That includes space, so that's heating the the air around us, water for your your showers, your baths, and cooking. So what percentage in the total heat budget, heat energy budget, is given over just Mm -hmm. to heat to keep you warm, you know, sitting in your living room? Ooh, I reckon about half of that. Fraser, higher, lower? Mm, I'll say about 40%. So, so it, it accounts for sixty five percent of our total energy budget in the home is just just keeping the heating on. Wow! And, and water seventeen percent. Cooking is actually very low; it's only about three percent. So there you go. Uh, you can see, and, and all of that is accounted for mostly f- through through burning of gas at the moment. So we can see where the emissions are coming from. So what can we do about it? Well, that's why today, you know, we're going to be chatting uh, to a few folk who've actually installed heat pumps. Uh, very few people in the UK have these at the moment. But we're really going to have to push uh, renewable and low carbon heating technologies. So the, the CCC, the, the Climate Change Committee, is looking at a large number of these going out by 2030. So they're, they're assuming around a million heat pumps a year being installed. And that's alongside three million insulation measures. So a, an insulation measure might be having your loft lagged, for instance. So you're getting a sense of just the scale of this. Um, and to give you, again, a bit, bit more context, just Scotland alone has two and a half million dwellings. So we're insulating the equivalent of Scotland every year, if not more. Wow. And of course, this raises huge questions, doesn't it, about just the supply chains to deliver on this, how we're going to build up those supply chains. Um, I know with the, the Green Home Grants that we've that we've had recently has had very poor uptake because of issues with the supply chain. So it's not for a lack of desire in many places. It's a lack of being able to get um, appropriate installers to, to support that. So I think that's going to be an, a key issue we're going to have to talk about. But of course, the cost. Where's the money coming from to deliver this? A lot of this is household level action. 
And that means we need to be thinking about, you know, are households able to to find the finance to do this? And also, what about people that don't own their homes? I think that's going to have to be something we can touch on as well. And hopefully, our experts on today's show will be able to guide us through some of these issues. Yeah, I mean, tenure's a huge one. And and even if you do own your own home, it's it's a big assumption to make that you've got the money to put in double glazing, to put in a heat pump. But just maybe taking a step back and look at these efficiency measures and looking at the policies. When we get the policy right, which we haven't often done in the UK around efficiency, but if you look at things like the energy company obligation, where the utilities have to meet a certain criteria and put in efficiency measures like free loft insulation. When we were going full tilt at that, in 2012, we installed 1.6 million loft insulations. 2019, that's fallen to 27,000. And that's presumably not because they're all in insulated. I'm pretty sure mine isn't. So why is that happening? Well, again, because we, we, ha- we really haven't uh, placed the emphasis on it in, in a policy context. And, and you mentioned the Green Home Grants, which is, you know, looking to draw down uh, grant funding between five and £10,000 to cover off some of these costs. Yet people are struggling to get the suppliers. If they do, the suppliers are struggling to draw down the funds. But it's not not for lack of demand. There's been huge demand for this. Um, so yes, lots of work to do. Um, Fraser, I, I believe from memory you're in rented accommodation at the moment. Yeah, I'm in a I'm in a drafty tenement flat. So I I, I don't have the figures to hand, but I'd love to see how much of it emissions are accounted for and how much of the heat load is accounted for in these kinds of within this tenure. Because the things that we can realistically do here, maybe some of the stuff that's been done in the Nordic countries, it's not inherently accessible at this moment in time to you can't just come in and insulate a tenement flat as easily as you could a detached house you can't just throw a heat pump up so let me ask you a question when what was the last time your landlord sort of chapped on your door and said what are your views on insulation efficiency what can i do for you in that regard has that ever ever happened no Absolutely not. No. Okay. <laughs> Categorically not. Anecdotally, when we did a few episodes ago, we spoke with South Seeds, and a huge amount of their work is helping people to access things like in Scotland, uh, the Warmer Homes Grant, these different um, different grants and funding schemes that are available, but that just aren't widely publicised or advertised or promoted, particularly among a lot of people experiencing fuel poverty who maybe actually stand to benefit more from from accessing them. Well, that, that's a great point, actually. And, and this idea of, you know, how to go about doing something. And I, I own my home and I would love to live in a more efficient home, but I get stumped at knowing even how to go about doing this. Who are the trusted advisors? Who can I trust to provide me that advice and support me on the journey? I thought it was telling when we were chatting to our producer, Dave, uh, earlier, and he was saying that, you know, nobody's put a heat pump under my nose, which I thought was quite telling because he won't be the only person who's saying, well, actually, if somebody maybe had presented this as an option, I may have considered it. So the whole marketing exercise out there, and even if, and this is a big if, we get the marketing right, we get the policy right, we get the education right, we might not even still have the people to install this correctly. So that, again, and I keep going back to the CCC's work, um, but their their work in conjunction with the Construction Industry Training Board, they're estimating that about 200,000 new jobs are going to be created by this, but that's largely because we need to train these people up. Um, there's a huge effort here to get the skills in place too. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think that's that's maybe... Not necessarily concerning, but it's an added pressure when when the CCC says that we have until 2030, we need to get X amount of heat pumps installed. Well, actually, we have to spend a few years first training those installers, those 200,000 installers. So the window is getting smaller and smaller when you add in these, these different variables. I guess the question is how realistic are some of these targets? To say that we need to install 1 million heat pumps per year by 2033 million insulation measures per year. I feel like the insulation measures is far more realistic. I feel like there's a supply chain there. And if we look uh, in past performance, we got up to about half of that a few years ago. I think we can do that. The 1 million heat pumps is where uh, I'm less confident. But this is where the community and local becomes so important as well, because knowing somebody that's done it, having that support, 
supply chains and businesses being able to start to develop in a place and build out from there. This is why we really need to be focusing on local action. And so these numbers are huge. And I think if we just look at it from a national perspective and expect us to be, you know, pouring some money in and and maybe even developing some training programs and for this to just materialize, to me, that feels unrealistic. But developing coordinated local and targeted strategies that starts to feel like we could really start to see some action on the ground. And I also think it's important for us not to just focus in on heat pumps because heat pumps are going to be a big part of this story, but they're not going to be the only part of the story. And in fact, I saw an article this week in the newspaper about, you know, the first few homes that are going to have hydrogen powered um, heating and cooking are going to be installed this year. And so, you know, hydrogen might be part of that story. District heating might be part of that story as well. Yeah, you're quite right. And I think ultimately it's probably going to become a blend of these. There are going to have to be some tough strategic decisions because if you do want to start to heat our homes and workplaces using hydrogen then, or even electricity, you've got to start making those decisions today and plan forward. I mean, we, I do a lot of work with distribution network operators. They're the people who deliver and maintain the low voltage network that connects your house to the wider grid. They're having to plan forward for this massive uptick in electrified heating and transport today. Absolutely. And, and do you know what? Uh, we're looking at getting an electric vehicle and just getting a connection point in the house. And that's for an electric vehicle, let alone heating, which would have a much more significant demand. So there's going to be real implications, not just on the supply chain, but as you say, on the on the wider infrastructure. And we really need these coordinated efforts to make sure that we are investing in the right things and that we're not wasting that investment. Hi, I'm Richard Lowes. I'm a researcher currently based in the University of Exeter um, Energy Policy Group. Um, and I've been working on heat for around a decade, um, previously working in the um, gas industry um, and moving into academia about six years ago. As well as that, in my free time at the weekends, I am an advisor to the Scottish Government's Heat Decarbonisation Programme Board. Um, and occasionally I do some secret work for people like uh, WWF um, and the Regulatory Assistance Project. My name's Jen Roberts and I'm a researcher at the University of Strathclyde in Glasgow. All of my research concerns social technical risks around the low carbon transition, whether that's from how we decarbonise heat, to how we treat water in a more low carbon way, or to how we de-risk subsurface energy storage solutions. A big welcome to you all here. Thank you very much for taking the time. Um, it's great to have you here, and I'm hoping you both survive the big freeze okay. Absolutely fine, thank you. Did you get any snow down in Cornwall, Rich? We did. Um, I even went surfing in sub-zero temperatures, which was nice. I was concerned that my house would get cold, and I'm pleased to report um, it was toasty all the way through. Right, you're lucky then. And Jen, you're, you're, uh, you're up in Glasgow with us, so I know how cold it was for you <laughs> it was utterly freezing yeah and I do not live in a very energy efficient or warm home so I was very much struggling to stay warm although I was pretty excited to have a whole series of icicles across my window uh, and then got panicked that that was really bad for the guttering <laughs> yes uh, yeah well you've you've I've, I felt the exact same panic <laughs> yeah so listen we've all been through a cold spell I think that the kind of the the sense the importance of heat has never been more acute than it has been over the last sort of two or three weeks so I guess it really brings into focus just you know the scale of the heating challenge that we're facing we've all got to keep just as warm as we have over the last couple of weeks, ideally warmer for those who are really struggling to, to pay for that. So in, in, in a few words uh, to the both of you, how big is the scale of the heating decarbonisation challenge? I feel like I should have stats and statistics to mind here, but the, the challenge is huge. I mean, we've got the challenge of decarbonising heating across the board in the UK, whether that's from commercial buildings through to domestic buildings, so the houses that we live in, through to how we actually generate um, heat for industrial processes. So currently we are massively behind on all of our targets, whether that's for renewable heats or um, other forms of low carbon heat. So that the challenge is, is very, yeah, it's still very much at large. And I think, as you say, with the recent cold snap, it's particularly felt right now. It's winter 
it was minus 23 degrees, you know, not too far north of us in Scotland. People's homes were utterly freezing inside. And that was with their heatings working at the maximum. And that's with their fossil fuel powered heat systems as well. It's such a huge issue. I genuinely don't think that the, the public at large, certainly, and even policymakers have really grasped with the scale of this challenge. It is a fundamental transformation. So so heat's half of the the world's energy demand, basically. It's half of uh, the UK's energy demand. It's about a third of our emissions in total. And it, it requires you know nothing short of a total transformation. Pretty much every house needs to have something done to it. And uh, if you look at the last decade... We, you know, we've gone backwards in many ways. So energy efficiency stopped, despite the fact that we had a climate change target um, from, you know, the Climate Change Act way before 2010. You know, we've lost a quarter of the time that we've got to get to, to net zero heating by 2050. So it's it's a huge target. And um, I totally agree with Jen. By all metrics, we are well behind on it. So, Rich, tell us a little bit about some of the biggest hurdles facing us right now. So why is this such a difficult challenge to solve? Well, many reasons, to be honest. Um, it costs more. So this is going to be an investment. Um, so a lot of money is needed to, to pay for the heat transition or to pay for everyone's houses to be treated with whatever system. So we, we know pretty much technically it's possible. Um, you can fit a low carbon heating system to a house and you can do energy efficiency measures, but they tend to cost a bit more than um, running your gas boiler and, and fitting an oil boiler. The other thing is, and this links to it, it's it's in people's homes. And so we've seen these really incredible steps for renewable electricity, particularly wind um, in the UK and offshore wind in particular too. That has been an amazing transformation and that reflects the, the sort of global momentum towards renewables. But that's all been fairly invisible, particularly the offshore wind part of it. And I think the fact that it's, you, this has to happen inside or two people's homes, it makes it a totally different challenge. And the other thing, I guess the other big thing going on at the same time is transport. And, you know, transport now looks really easy. The government's banned fossil fuel cars from a set date in the future. And you know, the economics of that look good. Whatever, whatever pathway you look at for heat, it's going to cost something um, and it happens to people's homes. And I think for those reasons, the policymakers aren't particularly <laughs> that fussed about really driving it as rapidly as it needs to be driven for the goals that they've actually set. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting when you frame it, that, you know, they've, they've come out with a ban for the internal combustion engine. It's fair to say that the Brits are pretty keen on their cars, yet there seems to be a hesitancy about doing the same thing with, with gas boilers. We, we may know more in the, the next few weeks as decarbonisation papers come out, but that, that did surprise me, I have to say. I think, yeah, well, we should have a ban on gas boilers <laughs> because, you, you know, you can't have gas boilers in the net zero energy system. It's it's a more embedded transformation than transport. And as I say, I think I think people have really looked at transport and seen the benefits of EVs, the multiple benefits of EVs and the flexibility that they can provide and the cost reductions. People, when they learn about running costs, are often staggered and um there's lots of good elements to it. And, and you can see why the government can say, oh, yeah, we can actually see this headwind. We can see the groundswell coming. And so we will ban um, cars because we know in 10 years time they're going to be even better. But for heating, um, there should be a ban. And um, there's not. And I, it's, it's, I think it's because it hasn't, that groundswell hasn't quite reached the policymakers and, and, and the government. And it hasn't captured them in the same way that electric vehicles has yet. Um, but we can hope, eh? I think there's also another thing at play here. There's quite a big disconnect between what the policymakers are saying in terms of we must do this. We have to transition away from fossil heat. You can see it in the 10-point plan, but actually there's a huge variety of ways that we can deliver low-carbon heat. There's not one you know, one solution and not one scale of solution as well. And so I think that's possibly part of the problem is that how do you visualise what that difference, what that change will be? And you've made a really good point, Rich, that... You know, if we have a ban on on boilers, uh, well, so you give the example of um, of electric vehicles. The thing is, by banning fossil fuel vehicles, you can think of what the alternative is. People know whether the alternative is actually going to be electric vehicles. But with low carbon heat, I don't think that policymakers nor individuals or communities can visualise what that low carbon heat looks like, what it means for them. And that's a really huge barrier as well in sort of enabling local level change as well as a national level change. I'm just wondering, 
from your work, like working with communities, do you see there being ways in which we can support that? So how can we support communities getting engaged or households getting engaged beyond just banning something or putting it into the regulations? And that's a massive, big and exciting and challenging question and something that we really do need to try and resolve but again I feel like there's no um, single response to that in terms of what the best or what appropriate methods for engagement how to improve um, community or, or local level engagement because it kind of depends on what what low carbon heat solution you're looking to are you talking about an individual homeowner are you talking about a renter are you talking about a community I, I live in a tenement um, are we talking about a, a say a community heat um, system and the the ways that we can engage heat users and the communities that surround those um, are really very very varied so I mean I can give an example of something I'm really really interested and quite passionate about which is the role of, of really embedding community needs and community choices in how we developed um, district heat schemes. So in this case, you've got a heat source or multiple low carbon heat sources going to multiple households. And this can be quite a radical shift in the way that they you know, they heat their homes. Actually, you really need to involve the communities and involve the heat users in how you install, how you design, how you finance, how you operate these systems. Because there's, you know, it's not just a technological problem at all. But if we're looking at something like, you know, a hydrogen boiler or even a heat pump, a domestic heat pump, we're looking at individual householders and treating them like consumers. So uh, analogous to transportation you can say the same thing with evs you know it's a single person often making a decision about a single unit and purchase so a question to rich i think to what extent do we need to look at heat as a community and as a local issue or what to what extent can we go about this in a kind of free market approach and just treat householders as individual consumers uh, well, I, I guess we've been um, taking a free market approach for quite a long time in energy policy in the UK, and that certainly seems to be the way with transport. And, and the focus, again, is on EVs rather than making things like public transport better and cycling better and so on. Um, and I was just thinking of the similarities between the two, actually, and you can sort of think of district heating as almost public transport um, that's centrally driven. And then you can think of these unique building options that are much more or, or would ex be expected to be much more sort of free market driven. The thing, so the thing about district heating is it is needed. Um, so whenever we look at the, the, the cost-effective pathways to get towards a low-carbon heat system, a big increase in district heating um, seems to be a necessity. In many ways, it's just more practical than heat pumps in, um, in cities um, because each building doesn't need to have its own unit and, and so on. But delivery of it is something that we're, we're just not very good at because we haven't done much of it. And growth has been so slow. Why is that, Rich? Why haven't we done very much of it in the past? Because when we look at some of our, you know, neighbouring European countries, we do see uh, countries where district heating is much more prevalent. So, so what stopped us in the UK? Yeah, so there's a really big, <laughs> a long answer to that question, I think. And, and certainly one of them is that we chose to go down a gas route in the 60s and 70s. So we discovered the North Sea gas and we just went, went for gas. And because you've done that route, it doesn't make much sense to do district heating unless you're, you're looking at the grounds of purely sort of system diversity. Um, the costs actually between gas and district heating based on gas are quite similar. So it's not really a cost issue. It's just it's just a decision that's been made. Um, but we do sort of have this very um, free market, very liberal competitive energy supply and, and demand business. Uh, and, and that doesn't really match up with the deployment of district heating. And so um, whenever I think about how best to deploy it, it seems like the local authorities got to have a really huge level of involvement, possibly a stake, you know, like, likely a stake, but they've clearly got to help with things like planning and regulations and so on. And, and I think that's where, and you'll, you'll know this, Rich, with your involvement in Scottish Government, I think that's what they're pushing at here with these local heat plans. Yeah, that's right. I should also say the energy system Catapult has done a lot of work on what they call local area energy planning as well, which um, I think it's got huge value for lots of local authorities because uh, the, the vast majority of local authorities now have declared um, climate emergencies, of course, and some of them have got extremely uh, tight timescales to meet their net zero ambitions and um, possibly um, quite unlikely timescales. But it's good that the ambition's there. But lots of those local authorities don't have a plan for heat. 
that that governance, that politics hasn't been devolved to them yet, but maybe it will be. But if there was a requirement on them for some sort of local area planning, you can just sort of see it it becoming more thought out in total and, and areas being zoned for district heating, you having a zone for heat pumps and so on. So, so on that basis, on the basis that we're going to have to plan forward at a national level, but as you say, also at a local level, what does net zero heating look like for these places? Um, you know, Jen, you mentioned there's other heating options out there. There, you know, as the BBC says regularly, there are other brands available. So, what what does net zero heating look like for the UK? I don't actually know the answer to that because I, what I do know that is that there's a whole range of different solutions. And so you even say heat pumps as if there's one single type of heat pump. And actually, are we talking about air source heat? Are we talking about water? You know, are we? It's really there's a whole yeah, there's a whole suite of different options. And I think there's actually there's a bit of a desire as well, not just to have a single menu, but also an integrated menu. Do we know what uh, the the net zero heating solution looks like? Or is it at the moment just a drawing board of different options? Because that's what I know about. I That's what I see. Perhaps we've got mixed hydrogen. Perhaps we've got district heating from bioenergy, you know. So there's a whole there's a whole different, um, yeah, just going back to the district heating, maybe it's back. There's a whole suite of different sources there. It could be biofuels. It could be, at the moment, you know, we've got a few um, natural gas-centred um, combined heat and power systems. Perhaps we've got mine water-driven district heat system. So there's a whole different set of solutions. And I think that's where it gets also very complicated for the, let's let's say the individual, um, Matt, you mentioned. And I think it's actually also worth saying that we know that individual consumers are, do not necessarily act as individuals and that there's a whole suite of different things that influence the individual's perspective or view. And that's, you know, individual drivers and agency, but also social factors and material factors, like things actually allow them to to make the choices they need to that they want to make, whether that's the house that they live in or or the geographical context. Maybe they don't live near a deep geothermal source of heat, you know. Um, And I, I think that taking apart that analogy to EVs a little bit, People know what they're shopping for, for cars, right? They kind of know what they want, what they need. They used to drive in a car. They know that they want to have enough space in the back for two kids, you know, that sort of choice. Whereas when it comes to the low carbon options, whether it's for our homes or for our industrial processes, um, I think for our homes, it, it's it's more distributed in terms of choice. So those sorts of things become very challenging. And you think actually the recommendations that were made by the UK Citizens' Assembly on climate change, one of the three appeals around heating and energy in the home, one of the three appeals was just clearer information. Yep. And I I want to bring up a a kind of related point, and that's that, you know, a huge number of these heating purchases are, are made in emergency context, right? So you tend not to think about replacing your heating system until something goes wrong with it and you really need to. But what's going to happen around the supply chains? Are we going to be building them up? I mean, what does this what does this look like in the future? And what policies do we need to be put in place, not just to facilitate the transition, but to ensure that people have the right sort of information and that the supply chains for these are developed and built up as well? It's a really good question. We've got the renewable heat incentive that's giving households a bit of cash, a sort of bung to have a heat pump installed. Um, and it's really only households that want the heat pump installed that that will do that because it's not like it's a money making scheme. It it covers some of the money of the installation, but you know you're not gonna you're not gonna make profit on it like you could do on solar panels, for example. And it's similar with the green homes grant, really, which is underperforming as well. It's just a a fairly rude lump of money that's put into the market to try and um, cause a behaviour change. And it's not really it's not investable that sort of policy because if you if you want to build a you know a, a heat pump manufacturing line in your factory you're going to want more than a year's worth of policy certainty. You're probably going to want a decade's worth of policy certainty, really, for that sort of thing. And so, say we we need to have our last gas boiler installed in 2033, which is the date that's been put forward by the Commission on Climate Change. By the time we get to 2033, when your boiler breaks, it needs to be easy for you to phone up Phil or whoever the plumber on the phone and say, my boiler's eventually gone. I know it's been rattling for a few years and and that, that fan has eventually gone or whatever. You need to come and fit me a heat pump now. That needs to be a seamless process. Currently, we have nothing like that. If you want something, it takes a long time to happen um, because there aren't many people to do it. 
I just want to break into the chat with Rich and Jen at this point because we've been talking for a while now about policy and high-level issues around low-carbon heat and particularly heat pumps. But what does installing a heat pump actually entail? What's it like to have a heat pump in your house? To understand this, it's important to get the perspectives of householders, people who have actually made this decision to install a heat pump and are at the vanguard of this transition to low carbon heat. So before we started recording this episode, I sat down to speak with Rachel and Alan, a husband and wife from Cornwall who replaced their oil heating system with a heat pump, and also the next voice you'll hear, Rob Whitney, who snagged a free heat pump installation as part of a trial being run by one of the UK energy companies. The heat pump was free. It was through the uh, Ovo Energy Zero Carbon Heating Trial. The heat pump has been supplied and installed, commissioned, and, and we're now running on 100% electricity in our home and heating our home using an air source heat pump. And it's great. Okay, so we moved into this house in November 2014 in a village which is off the gas grid. And the house was installed with an oil tank and it was oil um, central heating that we had. We had a few problems with that. <laughs> Firstly, it doesn't, it doesn't go with our sustainability ethos at all to be using fossil fuels. Also, we found that there were some leaks in the pipes, so we were actually losing a lot of oil. And we've got a friend that um, runs a business installing solid fuel stoves, mm. and he's got a new build. And he actually said, have you thought about a heat pump? And I thought, wow, here's a guy that is dealing in solid fuel, and he's saying, I've built a place, and I'm putting the heat pump in. So that was a, a real wake-up call for us when we heard that. See, that's that's really interesting, I think. You find it a lot with, not to go off on a tangent, but you find it a lot with um, with solar as well, is that generally is when people know each other, that's how the word sort of spreads about it. That's how uptake... Connections are made. Yeah, yeah. It's much less about actual promotion at a government level or a local level, but generally word of mouth. We paid in total about £9,500 for the system. Of that, the, the actual heat pump itself was only £2,500. <laughs> but we also had a new hot water tank and we did replace the radiators. So in total, it came to £9,500. Against that, we received the RHI payments and that comes to about £1,200 a year. So that's for seven years. So it pays for itself through the RHI. For those that aren't going to get that, 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 you know, it's a big upfront cost. Yeah, yeah, it becomes becomes tricky in, in the absence of the yes. RHI eventually. Yes. What was the process for there? How did you get How did you get the heat pump off the ground? Yeah, it was really easy. They came around and they... they they did measured. a survey and assured us that um, it would be compatible with our existing system, worked out an estimate of the government subsidy we could expect and um, took it from there. And how have you found it in, in comparison to a typical gas boiler? Day to day, it's, it's no different. It's honestly no different. <laughs> I mean, we've got a multi-zoning control system that allows you to set the you know the times and temperatures in in different rooms completely independently if you want but what we've what we've done is you know run it in a normal way you know we we've not really changed the scheduling very much from how it was done before with the boiler the house gets warm and looking at sort of snapshot of the energy bills it's at parity already and this has been you know obviously a hard hard use time for the heat pump it's really cold yeah, last week yeah when you say parity, Rob, do you mean as in it's cost you this winter how much it would typically cost you in a winter? Yeah, so obviously we're, you know, if our, if our gas bill, you know, just sort of using round numbers was £150 typically a, a month, dual fuel, you know, your electricity and your gas, it's looking similar to that. Obviously you've gone from um, oil rather than gas, but have you, have you noticed any marked difference in your bills, in your heating bills? We pay £168 a month for our electricity all year round. So we're paying more in the summer to be able to run the heat pump for all our heating during the winter. 
we were paying a substantial amount for our oil, <laughs> bearing in mind that we also had leaks in our oil system. <laughs> so, yeah, we were quids in on that. But one thing I would say in its favour is that um, it's evened out the cost because we found with oil that the prices fluctuated quite a bit month on month. And so you could just end up being unlucky when your tank became empty and you needed to fill it up. If the prices had shot up since you last had it filled, there was nothing you could do about that. And we need consistent heat in our house. Um, we've got my 88-year-old mother living with us. And so with the heat pump, we have all of our rooms on thermostats. So it's all thermostatically controlled. So there's constant heat 24 hours a day now when we need it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Ideal. What's the presence of the heat pump in your home? Where does it? Where does the actual unit sit? So the heat pump is outside on a side wall. It's no bother to us whatsoever. It's it's just on, it's just on the side of the house. I mean, we think it looks great. It looks a bit like an air conditioning unit. You might see, you know, the ones you would see perhaps if you're on holiday. You know, you expect to see these on the sides of um, apartments. And it's relatively quiet. Uh, after we did the installation, the firm said, would you mind perhaps showing some prospective customers what we've done? And so we had several people come around and we could say, that this is what it's like. This is what it sounds like. This is what it looks like. And, uh, and this is how warm it is in our house. Yeah, quite. <laughs> so my cupboard in the, in the kitchen that once was filled with a, a white box now has lots and lots of special looking pipes and valves and pumps and a big control box for the uh, for the heat pump there's also a heat meter and a flow meter so it looks a little bit like the engine room of starship enterprise now how does it look outside the house the actual unit itself it's basically like having a, a chest freezer plonked outside your house <laughs> <laughs> opinions vary on its aesthetic and, and whether it's a thing of, of beauty or an eyesore it depends very much on your on your perspective but um yeah there's a there's a unit it's um four foot long by one and a half feet wide and it's waist height it's got a big fan in it and a load of sort of radiators uh when the, the back and sides which are the evaporators and it sits there quite happily humming away to itself and literally everyone that comes to the house you know delivery people they'll question about it and it's it's a good opportunity to, to have the discussion you know yeah yeah no I, I think that's i think that's great i think it's those kinds of conversations as well that'll kick start the, the wider rollout of these things eventually thanks so much to rachel alan and rob for taking the time to speak to me and share their experiences with the show Back now to our policy experts, Rich and Jen, on the likely need for many more people to train as heat pump installers to meet future demand. We know we need double the amount of heating engineers because a heat pump <laughs> requires double the amount of work to install it. That's a really simple number that we can work out. These are really good jobs. If you're a heat pump installer at the moment, I mean, you'll learn a lot more than um, your average academic does for sure, uh, and a lot more than um, you learn in retail, absolutely. I had my heat pump service the other day. Um, it was £230 and the man did four in a day. Uh, and that's just labour, basically. So the money is really good um, and the jobs are good and they, they could be there for a long time. So, yeah. yeah. The other thing that this just, just very much frustrates me is that you know, there's a knock-on effect to all this in that we know that um, kind of social relationships or social networks are really, really important and really valuable in knowing, you know, who installs something. You know, I, I had this guy called Rich come and install my heat pump. He was great. He Becky, great. however, did a terrible job of my cavity wall, you know. <laughs> Thank you, <So>, Jen. <laughs> <laughs> Becky, I'm sure you'd be absolutely sterling as a cavity wall insulator. <laughs> but, um, you know, those those networks really matter and, and we should have been building those 10, 10 years ago. It should be that we're now in a situation where we've got a fantastic, almost keeping up with the Joneses type, <laughs> you know, yeah. my next door neighbours have all got these heat pumps on their balconies how come i can't you know and we've missed out on on 10 10 years of that it's a massive massively important point you're raising jen because as soon as this stuff 
is deemed fashionable. And if we start thinking about heating systems like we think about our kitchens or our patios or our cars, this is going to transform, I, I believe, quite quickly. So this relational approach you're talking about is so important to kind of educate, but also encourage and nudge people in the right direction. Mm -hmm. But let, let's talk about tenure for a minute, because I feel like underlining some of the conversations we've had so far is an assumption that whoever lives in that home or um, whoever owns that workplace is able um, to to make this change and to drive this change. But of course, that's not the case for, for lots of people. So how how can we make sure that people don't get left behind in this low carbon heating transition? Well, I mean, we we currently regulate landlords. Um, so, so if you're... <laughs> I mean, there's, there's a good side to this and a bad side to this. So if you're a social tenant, if you're in social housing at the moment, you're likely to have a more energy efficient house than uh, your counterparts in the privately rented housing. The social housing sector is ahead, basically, and that's years of investment and it's paying off. Um, and that's great. If you're in a private rented uh, house, which I've been in only up until the last two years, basically, and I'm lucky enough to have bought a house now, it's just terrible and you have absolutely no say over what you can do. Um, politically, this is a really um, interesting one because most MPs or a large proportion of MPs are landlords. And so there's been this hesitancy to introduce regulation on landlords for political reasons. And that's a real shame. Um, and it's a really undemocratic state of affairs to be in. But but there we are. Um, I don't see how, unless you regulate landlords, you can you can make any progress on this sector because as a tenant, you can't even hang a picture on the walls a lot of the time. Yeah, and I mean, there's been some interesting recommendations from the CCC about EPC standards being a minimum of C for renting, uh, also for sale. Um, but I think, could that be the kind of regulation that you're talking about, which could really spark uh, landlords into action on this? So, and I'm just thinking of people who look after buildings, and particularly in Cornwall, we've got a lot of um, solid walled granite buildings, um, which are very insulatable, but um, it requires significant work. So you probably wouldn't want to stop landlords letting out anything above a, you know, a D immediately, because um, this would take some time to do. But I think it's one of those things, and it's the same with appliance bans. If there's enough foresight, um, it just becomes something that you factor into your sort of business plan. And it might be that your solid walled um, flat needs full internal insulation. That's the only option. And so that will be quite a disruptive thing to do. Um, and it will be disruptive for a, a few weeks. But honestly, it will totally transform that house for the tenants and it will you know, dramatically reduce energy costs and emissions. So it's one of those things that is quite disruptive, but ultimately it's got to happen. Um, and basically, it's a matter of political will. And if the politicians um, won't do it, then we're in big trouble. So it sounds like it's a very complex environment involving kind of politics, regulation, um, all sorts of different owners and so on, householders, local communities. We've talked around you know, a huge number of different sort of actors in this space. So how important do you think local action is going to be in delivering this net zero carbon heating solution, whatever that is? How important are locals? And I'm, I'm going to throw in with one of the actors we didn't mention was the construction companies, just in case it wasn't complex enough. <laughs> um, yeah, so I mean, I don't want to distract from the massive role that policymakers and you know local authorities have to to play in this as well. It's really disheartening to to almost see like a blame on individuals and communities for not uptaking these technologies. And I, I find that just a very disruptive narrative when actually, as we've described, making these choices is hard. Um, often you cannot because you're a tenant, um, you're renting a home, uh, perhaps you're in, in you know infrastructure that doesn't allow for readily available efficiency measures but the the exciting thing to answer your question is an exciting role for communities if we listen to communities and if we go and meet them where they are and if we give them the capacity and the choices and you know the governance structures i suppose to be able to to really um, roll out their the solutions that suit them we know that there is not one single technology not one single solution not one single building has the same needs not one single community has the same resources whether it's it like you know 
the heat resources or the climate in which they live in and so on, or even the community capacity. So there's a whole range of different ways in which we can involve communities. I'd say there is such an important role for business here as well. I'm looking at companies who are trying to um, package up heat pumps and give them to customers on time of use tariffs. Um, I'm looking at uh, manufacturers who are now basically paying to train up installers to get accredited so they can install heat pumps and, and you know, within the microgeneration certification scheme criteria so that they sort of fit in with the um, policy um, uh, all those ticks too and uh, looking at network companies and I saw a presentation from um, one of the electricity network companies uh, looking at how they can support households apply to get heat pumps looking at things like free fuse upgrades and that sort of thing so um, I, I also think that if we can unleash um, the power of business it's also worth noting that there's a lot of cash you know sat in zero interest accounts across the world that, that needs to find a home um, if this can be packaged up into into useful business offerings or consumer offerings, um, then I, I, I'm, I'm optimistic that whizzy businesses, not necessarily the old ones, um, but some of the new ones can come in and really make this uh, cost effective um, and easy for people because it's got to be both of those two things. I, I'm not so optimistic, Matt, that the uh, heating system's ever going to become a new kitchen. Well, you know, IKEA may have something to say about that. Uh, and <laughs> finally... Uh, in 15 words, I'll, I'll maybe give you 20 if you're nice, is what's the one thing you'd like to change to get this transition on track? Drop that one in at the end, Matt. <laughs> it's a zinger. Yeah. We can cut all the pausing as well. <laughs> this particularly incredibly Good. pregnant pause. I feel like we should call this section transition in a tweet and maybe yes. make it a regular yeah. ending. Transition <laughs> in a tweet. I'll try and make this 15 words. I'm going to count them on my fingers as well. Okay, don't, don't count the words I've already said. I've only got 10. So. so we need some sort of market, wide market reshaping and something that places cost on carbon is a requirement i think that was 20 it may have been 21 but I, well done <laughs> jed i want to see now that's a waste of words <laughs> yeah <laughs> um we need people to no longer feel or be locked out of decision making and locked in to these traditional forms of heating. So we need to break that down. And I don't know how to turn that into 15 words, but it's about mobilizing choices. Yeah, no, that's that's perfect. Usefully, both of you, usefully captures everything you've been saying beforehand. So it just leaves it to, to Becky and I and Fraser to say many, many thanks for coming along today. Um, it's been a pleasure to have you. Uh, we hope that you will stick around for our future of fiction uh, game shortly. I'm extremely eager. Look at my face. <laughs> I can see some nodding, which is great. This is what everybody comes for. Yeah. This is what everybody comes on the show for. Everyone ready? Okay, so now it's time for everyone's favourite segment, the real reason that people come and listen to Local Zero, Future or Fiction. So for Jen and Rich and anyone who, who doesn't know how this works, Future or Fiction is a game whereby I present our guests with a, a new exciting energy technology and they have to establish whether they think it's real, i.e. the future, or whether they think that I've completely made it up off the top of my head, in which case it is fiction. So in this episode, the technology is called Power FM. That's Power FM. Researchers have established a way to harness radio waves to power small devices by picking up energy from the waves that bounce around existing broadcasting infrastructure the hope is to harness these waves to power the internet of things for use in smart cities and small wearable devices do we think it's the future or do we think it's fiction now i feel like i've fallen foul of, of a very similar one of these previously <laughs> <laughs> i also feel like the title of it makes me want to say, this is not one of your creations, Fraser. Mm. And I can also see 
just how carefully Jen is studying this. I should say for, for listeners that Jen is a qualified, a professional engineer here. Uh, so <laughs> I guess if she's studying this, is that there's possibly a bit of truth in this one. Like, but I'm trying to do little equations in my head. And <laughs> oh God, you're but onto equations, I, right? I'm, now. We're I'm in not, trouble here. I'm not. <laughs> What's what's your uh, what's your gut feeling, Jen? What's your instant reaction? Well, I, I feel like I'm going to be ridiculed by all the listeners by not not <laughs> knowing my my wave physics. I will also default and say I'm not an engineer by training. I'm a geoscientist. <laughs> <laughs> so, so my feeling, I'll tell you what my feeling is. My feeling is that it's fiction, and my feeling that it's fiction is that I'm like, but won't we be sapping the energy from the waves? <laughs> <laughs> right <laughs> will we not then cause like mute and blackout so that's what my brain instinctively did and you can ridicule that but that's what that's my thought process there that's what i was so, studying <laughs> so you think it could cause what kind of communication blackouts is that what you're suggesting or? um i don't mean to be quite so dramatic but i think i was thinking you know if we're going to then harness the energy from that wave might we be taking energy out that wave and yeah i think i think my um physics teachers might be crying a bit here this is getting really really heavy see i i like this a lot i like this a lot i like when we have people on who know about it because it really messes with you like you will never trust again after this second <laughs> Rich, what's your instinct on this? I actually think it's future. And the reason I think that is because I remember reading something about 5G sensors, probably about five years ago, that didn't need to be plugged in because they could use energy from the 5G radio waves to power themselves and to link into the network. So, so your, your, your phone would be charging itself, basically, once it's on the 5G network? This was things like sensors on traffic lights and movement sensors and that sort of thing. So, so nothing particularly with a, with a heavy, uh, heavy requirement for electricity. But equally, it could be something that I read on some mad conspiracy site late at night. So it's difficult <laughs> to know, um, but I'm going to go with future, I think. Okay, so Rich is sticking with future. Matt, do you have a hunch for this? Um, and from the limited physics that I can recall from my, my little brain, uh, I guess, you know, all waves are a sort of form of transfer of energy. So in theory, you know, yes, uh, it should work. How much energy it would actually convert, I don't know. But I, I think there's something in this. Um, so I'm, I'm going to go future. Becky. See, and this is where I hate to confess that I actually... I'm an electrical engineer and feel like I should oh, know she's something done it. about she's, this. She's always, <laughs> always a research project that Becky has done on one of these technologies. I was thinking, you know, through your intro, I was sort of thinking, oh, I'm not sure if I believe this. And then you talked about Internet of Things and it made me start to think about some of the, um, you know, Bluetooth uh, devices that are particularly low power. I actually think that this could be the future. I'm going with future on this one. Okay, so Becky, future, Jen, what's your final verdict? Oh, but now I'm getting, because I've had more time, I've listened to you all and I've also, you know, been thinking and I do also remember, and I don't, I'm like Richard, and this is like maybe not a conspiracy theory website, but something else about kind of capturing or harnessing natural background waves, so natural electromagnetic waves that occur do you know what? I'm just going to go. I'm going to stick with my initial gut instinct, which is that it was fiction, but um, I'm very much on the fence. <laughs> so that's three futures, one fiction. We're all rich. You're sticking with your future. Matt's sticking with future. The answer is... Future. <laughs> that was a good one. I am not smart enough to have come up with that. <laughs> That's got to be a dead giveaway. The the last episode was like a moving scarecrow powered by solar. That's my kind of Mickey up stuff. Yeah, that's, that's kind of Fraser's forte. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like these nonsense ideas. Yes, it's the future. Researchers at Georgia Tech have honed the technology using ultra-wideband antennas and charge pumps that can successfully harvest energy at ultra-high frequencies from radio and TV signals to power small sensors and other Internet of Things devices. At present, they have been able to pick up that energy at a distance of seven miles. So it's not just small and local. They can do it on quite a big scale. Very good. Excellent. And Fraser, the more you do this, the more you remind me of Chris Tarrant, actually. He <laughs> uh, was a millionaire. Oh, I don't know if that's a compliment. That's, I don't know I'm, not, I'm not sure whether it's a compliment. <laughs> I, think, I think it was. 
Brilliant. Well, thanks to Fraser for another fantastic future of fiction. And of course, thanks to Rich and Jen for their brilliant insights into heat decarbonisation. And thanks to all of you for listening. And we look forward to seeing you next time. Remember to, uh, to tweet us at energyrev underscore UK. Use our hashtag local zero. Ask us any questions and we'll try and get to them in future episodes. But for now, bye. Bye-bye. 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 I want to hear more about Rich's 5G late night reading. That's what the. <laughs> well, it was it was bloody right, wasn't it? Okay, <laughs> <laughs> really important question, Fraser. Was the name yours this time, or was it their name? Yeah, well, I wanted to pick up on that, Becky, because the name is always mine. It's always me that comes up with Sub- the name. So when you say on this occasion. Like, I know, I know. <laughs> I was trying to think of a really interesting like radio pun, but my head was wasted after coming up with a name for one of your papers this morning, in fact. I used I up all my pun finance. I, I looped Fraser in to come up with a name for a journal article that he's had absolutely no contribution to just because yeah. he's so good at naming things. <laughs> I think you should start offering your services, Fraser. Yeah, I will, I will. I think people would pay for that. <laughs>